Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. It was a cold winter's night when Melania Nye snuck out of home and headed to Keppel Street, Grey Lynn. A group of Pacific teenagers were gathering to start a revolution. It was a mixed crowd, gang members and university students, labourers and young professionals. But they were there with a common purpose, to push back. So we couldn't tell our parents, oh, we're just going down the road for a panther meeting, you know, and with these ex-gang guys and things, especially for us girls who uh, a lot of us were just starting university and um, were good church girls. But we knew this was different. We knew that we had to be part of this thing to change. Why sort of did you know it was different? Well, because, well, we didn't know until after that first meeting and we heard the leaders speak and we heard the platform and we were inspired to be part of that change. The Polynesian Panthers was formed in Auckland in 1971, moulded in the shape of the Black Panther movement in the US. Hi, I'm Jamie Tahana. And this eyewitness is about the Polynesian Panthers and their fight against racism in 70s Auckland. A co-founder was Will Ilolahia. He'd been inspired by the works of Bobby Seale, Malcolm X and other civil rights leaders. When we look at their platform, it, it, it was relevant to us. You know, barring the, the carry the arms, everything else that we saw and we experienced actually, you know, was to the point. Yeah, what were those platforms you translated? It was basically the same thing as like in regard to legal rights, education. Uh, we threw in the thing about mana pacifica because of the whole identity thing and housing, you know, legal right, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. So we just uh, got it there and translated it to be relevant to our, to our times here. From the 1940s to the 60s, Pacific migrants were brought here to fill gaps in the labour market often in poorly paid and back-breaking manual work. They flocked to Auckland, filling the inner-city suburbs of Ponsonby and Grey Lynn. Far from what they're known for today, in the 70s, it was known as Little Polynesia. Entire families filled houses. The first Pacific church in Newton became a magnet. On Thursdays, they were drawn to Karangahape Road for late-night shopping, fish and chips, or just to mingle but it was also run down and impoverished. There was a time when New Zealand cities were quiet and clean, but the cities grew alarmingly. People poured in, not just from the country, but from other countries as well. As the economy plunged in the early 70s, the spotlight and blame was turned to overstayers. Then came the infamous dawn raids. Started by the third Labour government and accelerated by Robert Muldoon's national government. Immigration was a hot issue in the 75 election, like in this National Party ad, an animated cartoon featuring brown-faced people with dark afros. Soon there were not enough schools or hospitals. Then one day, 
there weren't enough jobs either. The people became angry and violence broke out, especially among those who had come from other places expecting great things. Pacifica were stopped for random checks in the street. If they didn't have their passports or visas, they were hauled off. Factories were raided. So were Ponsonby bars. A police task force scoured the streets. William Billy Bates was a teen working at a laundry when he was stopped by police. Just waiting for a taxi at my washing, which I did at work. And, you know, he's constantly getting hassled by police. And these were detectives. You know, so they'll throw you off the wharf and all this sort of rubbish for no reason. Pacifica were being targeted as the overstayers, but in the 70s, most overstayers were from Britain. But racism towards the Pacific community ran deeper. It even went as far as haircuts. That's what Tingy Lo Ness found at Mount Albert Grammar. One day, the headmaster, Mr Hall, called for me to go up to his office and said to me that I was to get a haircut. I had a big afro at that time. Uh, and a lot of us Pacific Islanders had afros. And I refused and I tried to tell him that um, culturally Niue has a haircutting ceremony for the eldest son, who I was. He didn't um, want to hear or listen. And I said, no, sir, what about these white boys who um, have hair grown below their collars? I said, they were surfies from Piha. He said, no, get a haircut. So I got angry and upset and stormed out of his office and, you know... Um, as I was going out the front steps, there was already some students there. I don't know how they got um, hold of the information. Um, and they were just chanting, you know, racist school. Um, and as I was leaving, the foremost thought in my mind was that, um, you know, my mother was going to be very upset. Was she? Uh, well... <laughs> Alec for says their parents weren't all too keen on them fighting back. They had a, this, this fundamental... Uh, I think it's a cultural understanding that we're visitors and our relationship to authority was that authority was always right and it's always to be respected. Even amidst the dawn raids and stuff. Exactly. But that was a turning point for a lot mm. of our people is that they realised that authority isn't always right. We were seen as, as, as not respecting authority. In fact, we were challenging authority in a way that grated against uh, the, the popular thinking in the Pacific communities. And so for many of us, we were branded as the black sheep and troublemakers and all kinds of things. Milani says this group were different. They were born here and they weren't going to stand for it. We weren't from our villages, our parents' villages in Samoa or Niue. We were born in New Zealand and that was a brand new identity in the world. Nowhere, nowhere else in the world did we have that kind of... Um, uh, en masse, because, you know, there was a big migration of our parents who were, came in the 1940s, early 50s. We couldn't um, talk to our parents about it, our families. Most of us weren't able to, to express that. Um, and so I think we created this brand new identity in terms of um, letting New Zealand know who we were and that we were here to stay and we weren't going to, you know, we, we, we stood up to, we pushed back against racism. And so came the Polynesian Panthers. The first meeting on that June night in 1971 saw a couple of dozen young people pile into the lounge of Fred Schmidt's Keppel Street house. It was an interesting mix. There were gang members and ex-gang members. There were people like Will Ilolahia, 
fresh out of prison for assault. And those like Melania Nye, a first-year uni student who snuck out of home that night. All but a few were still under 20. The US Black Panthers were famously sleek, but they weren't shy about taking up arms either. The Polynesian Panthers wore a lot of black, but they didn't have weapons. Their push was to be accepted, to not be dismissed as another gang, even by their own community. They started organising things like homework centres, tenancy support, shows. We did old folks' home concerts around Ponsonby and Grey Lynn to dispel the stereotypes and, you know, of us as thugs and rapists and murderers. You know, that, and a lot of the comments from some of the old Palangi people at these concerts was, oh, you speak English, you know, and that kind of thing. It was a, an awakening for them to see us that, you know, we didn't have a phobia accent and we could speak English and... And uh, so we were doing that at that level, and at the same time, the homework centres. It was amazing what we were able to do. Plus we had the food cop co-op as well, and that was basically people who couldn't afford to buy, you know, veggies and meat or whatever. They'd buy it in bulk and they could buy it cheap. As the Panthers grew, so did their support. They joined Māori movements, like the Landhikoi and the Bastion Point occupation. They were on the front line of the dawn raids, picketing the immigration minister's house at dawn. They created a legal aid book drawn up by a prominent lawyer from Māngere, future PM David Longy, which the Panthers spread widely around Ponsonby. Alec Toliafor says that book, which included a poster about what to do when the police come knocking, was liberating. It freed us. It was, it was freedom, it was power that we never had before. We didn't know what our legal rights were. We didn't know that when you're being stood over by a policeman, and if you can imagine the 14 or 15-year-old kid in Ponsonby being stood over by a Pākehā policeman in a uniform, much taller and he's an adult, and then you're able to say to this guy, I don't need to answer your questions because I know my legal rights. There were things like in the book there, it was like, beware of the friendly police officer (laughs) because they're there to wrangle information out of you and use it against you, so look out for slies. Sort of language. But as Will Ilolahia found, some people weren't fans of the book. Yeah, so I get picked up by the cops um, on the basis that we are putting out false information. And in the station, they're all getting ready to, to beat you up. Because normally when you're in the cops station, they beat you up with a rolled uh, newspaper or a wet towel. So it doesn't, it's hurtful, but it doesn't mark. And when, uh, when I informed him that, that you know, uh, we weren't the, uh, the authors, we were just distributing, as Billy was saying, you know, putting a book together and putting a book in such a way that it was simple. They were surprised when I said it was David Longy who was, who was the author. And I said, you know, you should go and charge him. But, you know, anyhow. I'm and guessing they didn't. And that's <laughs> no. well before he became Prime Minister. That's mm. right. Yes. But for all the community work, the Panthers were there to rattle authority. They wanted to be a menace. And most of all, they wanted the police and government to know they were there. Will and Alex say they did that with what they called pig patrols. Which stands for Police Investigation Group. One of the, one of the great things about that was that we flipped the roles. Up to that point, we were the suspects. They were stalking us in our communities and harassing us and stopping us on the streets. But now with the Police Investigation Group, which was a group of uh, made up of community people, not all Panthers, and we were 
the watchdogs were watching the police. They became the suspects. And these are the people who are supposed to be protecting us. How did they respond to that? Well, they didn't like it because we made our presence known on every site they stopped. We were always there. And they didn't like this idea of being followed. And it's exactly what they're doing to us every day. It more or less halted their actions, eh? It mm. did. It stopped it mm. harassing our people. Because yeah. mm. they're so busy spending their time trying to get rid of us. Yeah. <laughs> or avoiding us. <laughs> the Panthers had an entire military wing, which got a lot of attention. Because the thing about the panther is that is our definition of the of of, of the actual animal itself. You know, it, it never attacks. But if it's attacked, if it's attacked itself and is caught in a situation for self-defence, it will attack. For what example, what kind of those things would they be, and and what would you do in response? Well, Shall we mention TAB? Yeah, TAB was our housing program, which is stood for Tenants Aid Brigade, not the uh, going down to bed on the horses. The landlords were identified. Their houses were noted, and the landlords would come out and find some of their, their their wheels on their cars had disappeared, or find out there's a whole bunch of rubbish on their front door. Us trying to tell them that this is what's going to happen if you don't change. What were these landlords doing? Oh, letting up people live in really, really Hobbits. houses. They were charging exorbitant rents, and they weren't maintaining. If those, if those structures was, were here now, they'd be condemned as unfit for human habitation. And so they were demanding these high rents. Uh, mm. And so we, we uh, together with other community groups, we barricaded ourselves into these places And after they received an eviction notice. And then the landlord would send uh, security firms down to remove us, physically remove us. One of the lighter side of it was that most of us knew the security guards because they were either our uncles or our cousins or something. And they look at surprise and go, what are you doing here? Melania Nye says even getting into a house was difficult. But even before they got into houses, the landlords wouldn't give them a place to stay if they had island-sounding names. So we would phone up these places to let, to rent. And because we didn't have a Fobby accent, oh, yes, oh yes, you can come in and have a look at the house. Yes, fine. And then when the real tenants would come in, they said, oh, no, it's gone. You know, the, you can't live here because... It's been taken yeah. or something. So that was the, trying to get them into houses and into good, healthy houses is what the Panthers mm. were trying to do. Throughout the 70s, the Panthers became a prominent force with many friends and foes. They met the mayor and in 1972 won a Governor-General's Youth Award for community service. But they also had frequent confrontations. They were on marches. They barricaded themselves in places. The military wing was always having run-ins with the police. In 1976, their Ponsonby Road headquarters were raided. They also formed an international network. Milani visited the US and met with the Black Panthers, who sent her home with a pile of resources. Will went to Australia to help with the Aboriginal rights movement there. The Panthers were part of the 1981 Patu Squad, protesting the Springbok tour at Eden Park. The Panthers never formally disbanded, but this would turn out to be their last official act. In the nearly 50 years since, Will's had many roles. Tongan Rugby League, the film industry, manager of the band Herbs. Tingy's in the music scene too, his band's Unity Pacific, his son Shefu. Billy Bates is living at home in the Cook Islands now. Alec Toliafo was a reverend. 
Milani teaches Pacific Studies at Auckland University. As I meet them on a drizzly Auckland Friday, they're a bit greyer now, but the energy's still there. They were recently at Ihumatao, as they say, once a panther, always a panther. What we did was just let New Zealand know that we were here to stay and that to make a better place we had to work together and we had to stop, they had to stop the racism. We're going into the schools, educate, liberate, panthers wrap in schools. We're dealing with a new generation who's, who's not standing for racism anymore and that's what we started in 1970. So the interesting thing is, is that back then... The, the fight against pushback against racism was from organised groups like Panthers, Ngātamatoa, People's Union. Yeah. But today, because of what we did, it's coming from ordinary New Zealanders. Mm. It's coming from ordinary New Zealanders who will not stand for racism anymore. That's what I see the, the legacy is, is that we raised the beast, you know, racism. We brought it to everybody's attention in New Zealand. This story was produced by me, Jamie Tahana, and the audio engineer was Phil Benj. Justin Gregory produces the Eyewitness series, and Tim Watkin is the executive producer. A special thanks also to Sonia Sly. Thanks also to Nataunga for the archival audio. To hear more Eyewitness stories, subscribe at Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Radio Public, and also rnz.co.nz slash podcasts. And please rate us. That way more people get to hear about us. Next week, Sonia Sly looks at the story of thalidomide survivors. But for now, Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.